with uh, what they were doing and the perspective that they have over the work and uh, and uh, we're really honored and blessed to have you both with us uh, this morning they've come a long way okay uh, they got a long trip back later as well so they um, we want to pray for them I don't know how you uh, plan to share but I think it'd be good to just pray for you both and that the Lord would minister and uh, speak into the church what is on his heart. So shall we just pray for David and Shirley and then we'll hand over to you if we may. Okay. Dear Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you for David and Shirley. We want to thank you, Father, for the work that you've done in their lives. We want to thank you, Father, that they, we have here, at Lord, a couple that are hearing from you. And Lord, we do bless you for that. And we give you all the praise and the glory for the fact that you have been speaking into their lives and meeting with them. And they have and are carrying something that is from yourself, we believe, to share to the churches. And Lord, we want to thank you for bringing them here to this church. And we want to ask, Father, that by the power of your spirit, you will anoint them to speak forth all that is on your heart for this congregation this morning. And for all our ears to hear, we pray for your anointing upon them. All that you want to bring to us, Lord, we want to be able to receive it. And we ask that, Lord, the word would be mixed with faith in our hearts as we hear. And that, Lord, we would respond to you. And all that you might say to us, would you bless them, Lord? Would you strengthen them physically, mentally, spiritually, Lord, as they come and share? And that, Lord, what you want to say would be what we receive. Lord, help us to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Help us to discern what you're saying in these days, Lord. Such critical days. And, Father, we pray that you make us alive to yourself. In these days, we'd have an ear to hear what you're saying. Lord, help us to be like the sons of Issachar who knew the signs of the time and what Israel ought to do. Lord, we need the wisdom of knowing what to do with what you share with us. So we are asking you to grant that to us also, Father, by your spirit. We ask these things and we will give you all the praise, all the glory, Lord, and all the honor, for it will be due your name. So be with us, we pray. Deliver us from any distraction of the enemy, of our own flesh, whatever it may be, and help us to be closed into you this morning, this day, we pray, Father. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to hand over to David and Shirley to share with us and to bring whatever is on your heart. Are we just sticking with this microphone? David isn't a, you don't move about much, do you, David, when you speak? No. No, he's just very stationary, brother, so I think that might be. <laughs> Could we just turn off the lights, if that's okay? Thanks. Praise God. Heavenly Father, I just come before you, Lord, that you would speak through me. Lord, I'm not interested in, in my opinions, but we want to hear from the throne of grace in these days, Lord. We praise your holy name. We seek your face in these days, Lord. We are serious about coming before you, Lord. I just ask for your anointing in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 We were talking last night about Paul a Hebrew of the Hebrews, 
and in touching the law, blameless, a Pharisee. And yet when he came before the risen Christ, he came with fear and with trembling and weakness. And it's not false modesty to say I feel exactly that. I find speaking up here is difficult because there's a smell of hypocrisy in everything I say because I know I'm a sinner and I'm saved by grace and I give God all the glory for that. Shirley and I walked away from God for 20 years doing our own thing and went into areas of life which we should never have gone into and it virtually broke us. And God called us back in 2003 with really an ultimatum. It was him or destruction. It was very clear, it was a precipice moment and we decided that day as for me and my house we would serve him and we put everything down, everything down and walked away from a life that was malignant and toxic to put our faith in Jesus Christ and I can testify from that moment forward it's not been easy but the Lord promises it won't be easy because in this life we will have tribulation but we should be of good cheer because he has overcome the world. And I will testify to that until the day I I leave or he comes back. So it is with fear and trembling I come, um, nothing more. In Revelation 12, 11, you don't have to turn there if it's only a verse. How did they overcome the enemy? The power of the dragon, Satan. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony and they love not their lives unto the death we were talking again last night about those three elements the blood of the lamb for in Corinthians 2.2 Paul basically summed up his whole mission in a statement a line for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified and it was that revelation that he had that broke him to realize that he was nothing he had to come in fear and trembling for his mission was simply that and frankly that is all I have to say is that we need to seek Jesus Christ all in all in all and him crucified and point everything that happens in our life in our testimony to him for the glory is his and it's not ours And so today, I want to just um, illustrate in a very short time what the Lord has been doing in 15 years in our life in in Nigeria, in the Niger Delta, which is the oil-producing area in the south of the country, which is a difficult area. It's volatile, it's unsafe, it's, it's replete with problems, and the problems are all down to man's greed. It doesn't matter if you're African or European, American or whatever. It's just man. A man and his inherent greed and sinfulness has destroyed that beautiful land and beautiful country. And we've been there where God has placed us very clearly in a sovereign way, uh, taking us without qualifications. I'm a GP. I've no experience in tropical medicine at all and I've no knowledge of West Africa either, but he took us in a sovereign way and placed us there. And for 15 years, we've been running primary healthcare clinics there, not from our point of view, but actually answering what we found out was the prayers of a small group of godly men who were seeking intervention for healthcare in that area. And the 
proclamation of the gospel in a land which is replete with prosperity messages and the detritus of 1980s American Christianity and the toxicity that it, it brought over there. So we were just a cog in a wheel and remained so. And we raise up local people, we train them and we employ them, fishermen and farmers, traders, and they do, do the work and we just support them. And we're a family, we're a ministry, they're brothers and sisters in Christ, we're horizontal, there's no hierarchy involved in it, there's only one person who runs our organization and that is a word made flesh and that is Jesus Christ. And he is the author and finisher of the work, it's as simple as that. And we seek him daily with seriousness. It's not about a work. It's about seeking him and making him manifest in that place. And for 15 years, we've been doing that. And we've had our problems. Clinics have been stolen. You can steal a building, it turns out. We've lost boats, stabbings, hijackings, hostage attempts, all sorts of things. And he stripped us down repeatedly till we've all just stood there in a derelict bungalow saying, well, what do we do, Lord? Lord? It, it's not about the work, it's about obedience. If he calls us to a work, it doesn't matter where it is. He calls us to a work. And it's not the outcome. He'll do the fruit. His, that's his responsibility. What we have to do is be obedient to the call, not question it and say, well, I'd rather be over there or rather over there. God has ordained the boundaries of our existence and put us in a place for his glory and not for our edification. The fruit comes in good time, in good time. But last year was a seminal year. For the past five years, we've been trying to hand it over. It's sort of like having teenagers. They've left home and you've put them, got them into some accommodation and you're taking stuff over there and trying to get them to work independently. And that's where we've got to. They've taken over the whole thing. We've been trying to step back. And we hadn't been for about eight months and wanted to go back and see. And the Lord spoke to us, spoke to Shirley on the airplane about the church of Sardis, that it looks alive, but it's dead. Mm. And that we needed to strengthen that which remains. And we thought, well, that's probably the work because, you know, it's wobbling a bit if, we, if we've not had a steadying hand on it. But little did we know it was about us, actually that there were aspects of us that were dead but looked alive. And from that, it rolled out to uh, a, um, a difficult time where we were taken captive for uh, 22 days by, by a gang in the Delta with uh, our very dear friend Ian Squire, who uh, is a partner in the work. And God saw fit to take him home during the first day of our captivity, uh, uh, keeping... Uh, Shirley and myself and Alana, a 24-year-old, wonderfully strong Christian, her first time out the country. And she uh, and us two were held for 22 days after that. And I just want to tell you, not about anything about us, because all we did was sit on a mattress. We didn't do anything. It's amazing when, in situations where you have no autonomy, people don't know who you are, they don't know what you do, you're just a commodity, you're a cash cow, and you're sitting on a mattress. But I wa what I want to tell you about is what God has done. Because when you see God at work, it is so encouraging. And that's the second part of Revelation 12:11, where it says, the word of your testimony. And this is a testimony 
I'm a little tired of telling in one sense, but it's a God-given opportunity to give him the glory and recount what God has done. And the final fruit of that was Alana telling her, her testimony last week uh, in her home uh, town in Northern Ireland, and she was very resistant to do it, found it very hard. But as she sat down after telling what God had done in the work, a man tapped her on the shoulder and said that he was planning on suicide three days earlier, but he had heard that she was speaking and thought, well, if God is in this, I want to see if God is real or not. I'm going to go and hear and he said to her, I know he's real now, and I'm not going to kill myself. And I can see a way through this. So the fruit comes by giving the testimony. And I pray that what I say today will not be of me, but it will encourage some of you who are passing through a hard time to know that we have a God who is alive, who intervenes in our lives in a sovereign and a wonderful way. But it's difficult to understand that without contextualizing it a little bit. So I've got a little bit of footage of film just to show you what we do and then to show you where we were taken, to show you the sort of people who took us, which is virtually identical, a bit of footage I found on the internet. And then to give a little te a testimony of Ian Squire because actually I don't believe we get invited anywhere unless it was Ian's sacrifice and the fruit that has come from his martyrdom. An extraordinary man of God. So let's just roll the film, if we may.
entire community. This is their burial ground, their cemetery. And um, when new foundation came, the death rate um, completely go down seriously, reduce, and um, just few um, children died maybe in the uh, in the month in the month maybe sometimes you not see any a year maybe two or three so it has come down seriously the whole of this place is a burial ground but you cannot see any dead uh, body there it's just only there just only that one.
So what do you do when something that looks so blessed of God, like family, we've been in Nicaragua there for 10 years solidly, and they're just good people, friends, and good relationships, even though that's in the midst of the hostage-taking area. And we got taken, as I say, brutally at night, unexpectedly, put on a speedboat and taken off to the mangrove swamps deep towards the Atlantic in quite a hidden area, put on a platform there. At that time, you saw the pirates there on land, but in October, it's, it's a wet season, and the whole of the bush there is six foot under floods, so there's no land at all. And we were just on a pontoon, and Ian was shot in the head the next day, and they pronounced profanities over his body, in a, in a truly demonic, evil uh, way that was, it was hard to fathom. Uh, and we had to sit there with his body for the rest of the day. Um, Shirley was covered in his blood. It was, it was a, a, a truly awful situation. They moved us in the evening to another platform where we were put on a mattress four foot six under a mosquito net and we were not allowed to stand up or move about for the next 22 days. And three of us on a, ma a mattress is quite a challenge. If you wanted to open your bowels or, or pee, you had to do it over the edge of the mattress. It was 16 feet by 10. There were seven people who sat on the, on the platform in the daytime, um, mainly smoking weed, uh, drinking palm wine, uh, smoking uh, profanities, endless... Um, their shotguns, they intimidated us. Um, there was always the, the threat of rape. Um, and it was, it was truly a difficult time. And then at night, another seven would come. So there were 17 of us on uh, a, a platform as big as some people's living room carpets. And in the middle of that, they had a fire on a metal sheet and they would shoot Komodo dragons and monitor lizards in the bush and chop them up. The, uh, these are five-foot things they would chop up in front of you and cook on this fire. All smoke, crack cocaine in the evening, have sexualized rap music on phones, um, and just intimidate us. And we were just sitting there. You weren't allowed to speak, you weren't allowed to do, to do anything. And having seen Ian taken, there was always that threat with uh, occasional intimidation so that that was going to be our fate too and a demand for 2.4 million pounds. So what do you do in that situation as a Christian? Because suddenly you're challenged, you know, what do you actually believe? You know, it's all very well sitting in church in a euphoric state as we all sing together, but actually in that situation it's a bit of a challenge. And you think, actually, do I believe this? Is this actually going to, is there a God out there? Is there a, a redemptive power in the blood of Christ? Or is this, is this bogus? And for us, we understandably prayed to be released. But after a week, God showed us very clearly that was not going to happen and that it was to be praying for more of him. And surely I'll talk about that. But the only thing, and thank God for Ian's nous, he asked for a Bible before he was shot, about an hour before he was shot, and we were given a Bible. And that Bible was the key to everything. Absolute key because there was nothing we had. We had no power, no rational argument, no pleading, nothing that we could do could affect the situation. Now that's not just a pity thing, it, it's a fact. 
in the same way that we can be in a situation here with illness in the family, unemployment, debts, housing, all these things. And sometimes we're not in a position to change any of them. And we think, where is God in that situation? So you don't have to be hostage in Africa to experience these sense of powerlessness. And what do we do? Where is, where is God in these situations? God is a very present help in trouble. He is a refuge. And we found that the Bible became more than a book as we know it is. It is a person. It is a word made flesh. And it is the word of God, the living word of God. And because of time, I'm just going to cite a few examples of how God intervened in this situation. That we found all we could do was read the word of God in the daytime. And we went to Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2 and 3, thinking that we were, we were alone and our families had moved on because nothing was happening. But we knew that we were compassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses. And when we woke each day, we had feelings of outrage, anger, fury, sadness, fear, trembling. And these were the weights and the sins that so easily beset us, which we read of in that, in that verse. The weights and the sins that so easily beset us that we have to lay aside such that we can run with patience the race that is set before us. A race of which we don't know how long it's, go it's going to be. And that's a very conscious thing as Christians. We have choices to make when we're in trial. That we can have a pity party or we can say, yes, I acknowledge I'm outraged. If I could get hold of that gun, I would do some damage. That is how I feel. That, that is the flesh rising up. But I choose this day to lay this down because this is what Christ died for and give this weight and this anger to him. And for surely it was the outrage and the fear of not seeing our sons again. My mother was dying of cancer at the time and I, wasn't, I was furious at that too, thinking she's having to go through all this in her terminal phase. And they had a casual indifference over the whole thing. And I get that because that's, that's where they come from. But what do we do with those emotions? We take them to the cross. We take them to the cross every time. We lay them down and God exchanges it for that peace that passeth all understanding. It's transitory because the flesh rises up again. So Christianity is an active contractual negotiation that's submitting yourself to Christ every time for the price he paid. And not only that, but if we demand patience to run the race that is set before us how do we get that well it says in Romans that we rejoice in tribulation which is even harder to say I will rejoice in this situation because in doing so it brings peace patience and patience experience and experience hope so suddenly we see the word of God become alive and practical and relevant in a situation and when we apply it to our lives, we see that the Spirit of God is real. He takes those burdens. He replaces them with the Spirit of God in power, 
Why? Because the Bible says we are dead in Christ and hid with him in God. Well, if we're dead and then we can acknowledge that we're dead, actually you're free because there's nothing to hold on to. And we had to get to the point three times where we thought we were going to be shot. And you have to wrestle yourself down to that point where you say, Lord, I am ready. If you took Ian, you can take us, it's, it's fine. It's transitory, and then the flesh will rise up and says, hold on a minute. What about this, and what about my sons, and what about, and what about you? So it's active, and that's why the path is narrow, and it's relentless, and it's not easy, and it's about dying to self the whole time. And I'll freely admit, I found that really hard, really hard. But God took us to a place. And then beyond that, you're looking at these people who were off their heads the majority of the time, either going up or coming down. And the shouting and the maelstrom of voices that went on all night because they were on watch the whole night. And when one was asleep in a canoe, the general, as he was called, came and thrashed him 50 lashes with the back, with the back of a machete in front of us all night. And you think, these people were demonic. They worshipped a god called Egbesu, which is a one of a, a pantheon of gods in the Delta. And it's in the ascendancy in that area now, fetish, med, uh, fetish worship. So there was demonic presence in the people there, especially in the guy who had it. He, he, he was tiny, he was weak, but he had a demonic authority that when the outboard appeared in the evening, growling as it came through, through the floods, everyone went silent. We were told not to speak at all. And this small man would climb onto the platform, but he, he transmitted an evil authority that um, I, I can say I've never seen anything like it. He had absolute authority over all those men, and it was demonic. Well, what do we do as Christians? It says to love your enemy. And you're looking at these guys, and you think, how can I possibly love you? You've shot my best friend. You've intimidated my wife. You threatened me. But in Revelation 3, 2, where it talks about the church of Sardis to strengthen us that which remains, the three things that remain are faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of those is love. And God replaces anger with love such that we began to love those men. I don't say that lightly, but three in particular we began to respond to. And Shirley will speak a bit more about the one. But we began to see them as men who had no love in their lives and therefore there was no love in their theology. One said, as he was smoking joint, he said, why do you not read the Old Testament? Why do you always read the new? And we said, because the, the old tells of the new. It's the next part. Judgment has been replaced by mercy and love in the person of Jesus Christ. The Jesus you're talking about is different to the one I've ever heard about. 
tell me about him. Praise God. A man involved in serial rape and murder asking you, who is Jesus? What a gift. What, a, what an absolute privilege. Such that we could sit there behind our net and for 22 days give the gospel day in and day out by reading the word of God aloud and when able and when asked to introduce them to our saviour Jesus Christ not easy you had to be very sensitive and allow them to do the leading but there were three in particular who sort of had a softness one had fractured his ankle and he walking on the bamboo struts it looked incredibly painful and I said look if you can get some plaster I'll bandage that for you why would you do that I said because I can separate out my feelings about being kidnapped from the fact that you're you're suffering okay the conversation stops there why because you're speaking to my soul and you thought there's a way in here that God's opening doors through love through concern for humanity and these are people like me there is no difference between that man holding a shotgun and myself with murder in my heart there's no difference we're all the same we're all the same we're sinners saved by grace but these men haven't heard about our saviour and they need to hear because they had made some serious life choices that were bad but they had never had a chance. So we grew to love a number of the captors. And at day 21, we looked at each other and said that we have told them everything we can about the gospel. It is done. There's nothing else we can say. It's now up to them. But what was the most important thing I think I would say is that it wasn't us because we had no capacity to love them at all for what they had done in the flesh you couldn't and there was no slick arguments you could bring and when you look at Paul he doesn't bring although he's a Pharisee although he's learned he could have brought every argument of the law to bring to bear but when he had met Christ he was reduced to a man of fear and trembling in weak words because he had met with the Christ. And therefore he knew he had nothing to bring to the table. And we were in that situation that we had nothing to bring. I had no slick arguments because there was absolute hatred for, for white people amongst them. Absolute hatred. So there was nothing I could say which was going to do anything but antagonize them. But when you showed them the love of Christ, there was a third person in the, in, in the narrative, and that was Christ. And they began to see him and not us. Well, 22 days is, is a short time in one sense, but it's a long time if you're sitting on a mattress. And we didn't know how this was going to, pa to pan out because we didn't have any idea what was happening outside. Incidentally, our family do not have 2.4 billion pounds to fling at the situation. 
but that is a different story. Every day we woke up and you literally had the jungle drums of the fetish shrines in, in the creeks going at it. We had no idea of time. And in the morning, everyone was coming down from drugs all night. They were irritable. They even pickpocketed each other if they were asleep. None of them knew each other's names. They were all seconded. They all had pseudonyms, pharaoh, pastor, wise man. A man who just called himself no name. The, ge the general, the commander, the elders. They didn't even trust each other. They were in bondage. Absolutely in bondage. And although we were trapped behind a net, as Shelley said one day when she was assertive, she said, you know, we are freer than any of you out there. They couldn't understand that. They couldn't understand that. But the last day, the 22nd day, we awoke, and it was a normal day. Every, all night, all night, were stolen mobile phones playing sexualized rap and, and snuff and movies and violent films. It was just constant, a number of them going all the time. And Shirley got up, and I always followed her uh, to, well, got up, and it sounds like we had a bathroom to go to. It's just literally, you leant over the edge of the mattress to a pole, and I had her wrap, and I was sort of kneeling, holding it. And that day, as she was doing her ablutions, I won't expand on that, and I'm leaning over the edge, the floods were going down, and from being within two inches of our mattress, it was about a foot down. It was stagnant. Remember, there are 17 of us on there using it as a toilet every day. Monitor lizards, which are cooked, and all the fat just poured out there. We weren't allowed to wash or do anything. So the smell and the stagnancy, the, it was like a turbid soup. And I thought, you know, we're going to get ill. We have to get ill at some point. They had malaria. The guy who cooked our, our daily bowl of noodles had dysentery, which he was proud to announce, and then handed us a bowl of it. And I thought, you know, one mosquito bite in that area, for us who have no immunity to malaria, could be death. Shirley's had rabies malaria. Friend has been in intensive care. We were so conscious of health, and yet we didn't have one day of illness the whole time. Not one. Shirley's covered in flea bites off the mattress and bits and bobs, but not ill. And that day, suddenly, as I'm leaning over thinking, you know, something has to give, and that day I'd woken up and I thought, today well, we're going to be shot, and actually Alana and Shirley had, had woken up thinking exactly the same thing, because they were running very low on patience. They had not anticipated it to go on as long. And we were not coming up with the goods. And we, each of us had a sense that this was a, a make or break day. 
So Asholi is squatting over the pole, and I'm just having a look at the detritus, the bottles outside, the wrappers, and the, all, the, all the stuff that's flo floating about. I was r seriously heavy-hearted and despondent. And suddenly, there was this absolute still. The mobile phone stopped. Everyone on the platform were just sitting there as if frozen in time. And suddenly, we heard a sound. It was a mobile phone, but this time it had bass on it. You don't get bass on a, mo a mobile phone. And it had surround sound. And in this clearing in the bush, we heard this. says he will make a way today and one man came up sidled up and he said tonight I believe I'm going to be sleeping in my own bed and at four o'clock when he normally came at night the general and all his elders came on a boat and within 36 hours we have been released we're on a private jet to Abuja, and within the next 12 hours, we're in Heathrow. Unbelievable. Exactly as God had said, exactly in his time, and 18 hours before we had been released, we had closed the, bar, the Bible saying, we have done everything we have needed to do to tell these men of their Savior, Jesus Christ. At that point, they were asking for Bible st studies. We'd just been through the whole of the book of Zechariah. 
and the next day was going to be Timothy, but the next day didn't come. So what happened after that? Within, we opened the clinic again, even before the man was caught. And everyone said, you're mad, you shouldn't be showing it. The very next day we opened it, he was caught. Forty-five of them were involved in taking us, and 43 were killed. Three weeks ago, I got a WhatsApp call from one of the kidnappers. You may think it's daft to give your kidnappers your home details, but I did, because he was interested in the gospel, and I loved him. And he contacted me at 4 a.m. saying, you gave me your details in the creeks. And I think he was surprised that I gave him the correct details. When we were released, it took him two weeks to extricate himself out of the gang. And he went to a church. And he tells me he's given his life to Christ. Hallelujah. I think it's, personally, I think it's a work in progress. But... Yesterday in Morrison's, I sent him another three sermons by Zach Poonen. He said, sir, you must send me more, more of these. Amen. Tomorrow we're having a conference call. He said, in the three weeks, he said, he couldn't understand how we laughed and how we could pray after all that happened, he said, I was so surprised. He said, I, I couldn't process it. I told him to go and read the book of John. He's read, he's read the book of John. And he said to, he said to me on a WhatsApp thing that uh, his life has to be on the sure foundation of Jesus Christ. This is the fruit, not from us. Not from us, no way. We were just angry and fed up and wanted to go home. But Christ uses people to reach others. This is a dear young man. And I know he would have killed me if he was told to. But I love that guy. I love him. He's a good man. He's redeemable, as we all are. And he's no different to you or me. And that's the same with all of them. And when we were told the general had been killed, we were so sad because we had planned to go over and see him in jail. He was the only one we couldn't get to to tell the gospel. But we had heard that he's, he said himself he was sick of life. He had nothing to lose. He was 27. 27. Nothing to lose. Creating mayhem. The week after we got out, he decapitated a secret servant agent who had come to capture him and paraded his head around all the communities. He was a serial rapist. He was creating havoc because he didn't know the risen Christ. I'm going to hand over to Shirley, but I just wanted to share a few things of the reality. Whatever your situation is, do not despair. Do not despair. For the God we serve is real. And he comes into situations. 2,000 years, he came, he came into mankind's situation to be born and experience everything which we experience. There's nothing on that platform that he hadn't experienced. Nothing. No hatred, murder, or anything else. It was a blessing to go through that experience. And we give him all the glory and all the thanks and all the praise. And you. Sorry, I've taken my shoes off.
I'm not crazy. But what I am, or what I'm trying to be, is obedient. And as we were singing praises, God said, take your shoes off. You're on holy ground. It's not a special building. It's not because of anything. But God's people are here. And when we worship Jesus Christ and the living God, he's here. And I don't know about you, but I felt his presence today. I felt the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's always difficult, I think, still for us to talk about the kidnapping in many ways because it's still quite raw. It was sort of six months, two days ago since it happened, which is quite a long time. But when you see something so um, outlandish and traumatic as a friend being shot in the head in front of you, your world changes, your life, your perspective changes. But more than that, when you're in a situation where you, as David has alluded to, have no autonomy, you have no voice, you're nobody, you're nothing. You don't even have control over when you can go to the loo. Everything is stripped away. And as David said, what do you do when everything is stripped away? What do we do? As Christians... We have a choice, as David says, we can try in our own ingenuity to negotiate. And to be honest, that's how we started off. We thought, this will be okay. The first night after they took us and we were lying on the mattresses, the adrenaline had rushed through our body for the hour and a half journey in the boat. So we were exhausted. And we, we slept for a couple of hours until daylight came up. But as we were just going to sleep and it was pitch black, we couldn't see anything. Uh, one of the kidnappers who could speak English went round the mattress on the pontoon and said, don't be afraid, everything's going to be okay. And we kind of bought that and thought, well, that's okay. It'll be fine. We can negotiate. We'll tell them who we are. We don't have money. We're not oil workers. We're here serving their people. It will be okay. And the next morning, we were all very buoyant, including Ian. We were joking. We were laughing. He'd asked for a Bible. And we were saying, you don't need to ask for a Bible. We'll be out of here. The arrogance that we had, really. But everything changed in an instant when he was shot. And all the plans of man, all of four and a half degrees we have between us, all the learning meant nothing. And then we looked and we saw the gift Ian had acquired for us, the word of God. And as David said, that became our food, our drink, our sustenance. It was our cover. It was our life blood at that situation. We had one Bible, there was three of us, so we read out loud so that we were all hearing the word of God. And as the light was fading and things, we need reading glasses, Ilana at 24 didn't, so she could read, you know, into the small hours. And I think when people look at the situation, when we first looked at it, we were just a commodity, we were there for money, but pretty quickly the penny dropped. This was a spiritual war. 
we've dropped, been dropped into the middle of. And probably the frontline hardest bit of warfare we'd ever fought. But when the penny dropped that this wasn't about us, it wasn't about us getting home, it wasn't about our lives being, why are we taking, we've got, you know, we've been doing this. and It wasn't about us, it was about Jesus Christ, his bigger plan, his ways, his ideas, his accomplishments that he wanted to get out of this. So when we got with his program and we left our broken program, everything changed. When we knew that we couldn't negotiate, we couldn't find any way through. And once Ian had been shot, we were in a state of shock and, and kind of trauma. So, you, you know, you kind of shut down a bit. It's a God-given ability to protect yourself. So we slept for a little while. And then when we woke, um, I think our, our overriding thing was to try and keep as small as possible, not catch eye contact, not really intrude on them, just keep small and maybe they won't bait you, maybe they won't touch Ilana, maybe they won't. So we kept small and God was clearly, no, we're not to cower in the corner. We're not to back down as they rose up and came towards us because that was what was happening. The quieter we became, the more they came. And when When we decided to seek God and say, what do you want? How do, we do, how do we do it your way? Because our way is not going to work. We're going to end up dead or we're going to end up worse, maybe. They spoke, spoke about selling us to Boko Haram. They spoke about selling us on to other gangs. They spoke about shooting us. They spoke in pidgin English, which we understood. Ilana didn't. So we could hear this all night, all these conversations. So your natural default is to go very small, hopefully not be seen. But as we prayed to God and sought his way of doing it, he, he was clear. It's not to shrink. It's to know who we are in him. To know that we are loved by our Father God wherever we are whatever the situation, that it didn't take him by surprise. He knew where we were because we had this feeling. No one knows where we are. We're, no one will ever find us. And he, he clearly showed us, I know where you are. And not only did he know, he knew it was going to happen. And as we looked back on the week and pr prior to arriving in Nigeria that week, we saw things that he had put in place for when we returned. She couldn't even make this up. It was so extraordinary. Why he chose to take Ian the way he did, we don't know. But we know that Ian instantly was translated to a place he would not return from even if he had the offer. When we went on mission field and we would talk, a few of us and Ian, we all used to say we don't want to die in an old person's home with our feet up. We want to die on the field doing something for God. You know, we would rather go out like Elijah than like an old person in a wheelchair or 
So, you know, Ian had stated it. That was... So we knew that he was where we would all be one day, and it comforted us. So when we came back, we were looking at the things that, you know, had happened and looking at the extraordinary bits that God had put in place, things that very clearly showed us he knew it was going to happen. Even the scripture that he gave me on the flight in Revelation to strengthen the things which remain. Because as we lay on the mattress, we, that came back to us and we thought, okay, God, what are those things that we need to strengthen while we're here? You know, you get taken immediately to First uh, Corinthians thirteen, thirteen. the things that remain are faith, hope, and love. And certainly we needed faith then because our faith had dissipated when we saw Ian shot. We didn't expect it. How could God allow this? What's happening? So your faith is under attack immediately. Hope. Hope had gone. Nobody knew where we were. How were they ever going to find us? We don't have that money. And anyway, we can't negotiate or speak to them. And love, we had no love in our heart for these men. When you see your friend shot by someone and then they joke and profane and make light of it, it's very difficult to even like them. So love, come on. Love was reserved for my sons or nice people at home. But these men were really, as David said, they were demonic. But we had these words from God, strengthen the things that remain. So we looked at these things that remain. They needed strengthened. So we had, even when our shock and in our shutdown, we had sense enough to follow the word of God. When logic had failed us, when human thoughts couldn't even organize themselves, the word of God was a sure plumb line. So we took the last words that God had said to us, strengthen the things that remain, and we prayed into that. And then he took us to Hebrews and told us we weren't alone. There was a crowd of witnesses of saints that have gone before, and not all of them die in their bed peacefully. And we were reminded of martyrs, we were reminded of people who'd given their lives, very short lives, people in their 20s who'd gone to be missionaries to the same area, in the Victorian area, who lived six months. And we were reminded of all these people that have gone before. And God knows each of them, and they're each part of our family, our heritage. So God led us to have a vision that we weren't alone, that he knew where we were, and he had a plan and part of the plan, as David said, was to stop asking that we would get released. Because at first we felt we had the right, you know, get us out of here, God, this is an accident. No, there are no accidents with God. <laughs> it may not be what we would plan, but it's not an accident. So then it's what do you want from this? And as David said, as we prayed, he replaced all these sin, repeating sins of anger, hatred, outrage with love, patience, meekness. And as we came, as Paul had said, you know, we read that Paul had had a thorn in his flesh and he besought God three times to remove it. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. So we said, Lord, we need a sufficiency of grace for now. Not for a month, 
not for just a <laughs> grace became a commodity that you could feel, touch, and weigh. You came with empty hands and empty inside and said, Grace, Lord, for today. Grace. And he filled it sufficient for that day. Or even that half of the day. So the second half of the day, you'd have to come back again. Lord, grace sufficient for this situation. So that I don't let my mouth run off at these men. So I don't dishonor your name. Grace that I can show them the love of Christ even when my flesh cries out against it. And that grace was poured in liberally. There's no end to the grace of God. And we just learned that that was, that's the only thing I could say, it's like a commodity. It was, it was solid, it was real. And it was sufficient. So we put things down and we went back to God. Sometimes three, four times a day, we would just sit on the mattress, hold hands and say, we would cry out to God, oh God, fill us with your grace. Fill us with your mercy, your kindness. May we see these men as you see them and not as we see them. Now, I don't know about you, but if you change from looking at men that you want to, as David said in some instances, actually kill. And in the next five minutes, you're looking at them and you love them. You genuinely feel love and compassion. That's nothing short of a miracle. The spirit of the living God replacing what's in man's heart. What we saw, and God revealed to us how dark and wicked we still are. You know, we thought, well, we are quite sorted. We've given our lives to Christ. We are missionaries. We've done it all. You know, we're ready to die. It's a lie. It was a lie. We had to strengthen what remained in us that was about to die. We had been going along the same path we had good doctrine, good theology, blah, blah, blah. But until you are ready at any point to say, for me to live is Christ, but for me to die is gain, then we're playing. So he got us to that stage, and I thank him for it. And we've witnessed to some non-Christians and said that we wouldn't undo what had happened. And they're like, what? You say, well, no, we wouldn't undo it. We wouldn't have chosen it at that time if somebody said, would you like to be kid?" No. But we wouldn't undo it. God showed us so much during that time. And we saw so much of his power, his authority, and his strength. As we engaged in what was ultimately a spiritual battle, for three weeks. Our weapons, their weapons were guns. Their weapons were knives, machetes. Our weapon was that. Amen. One between three people. More than sufficient. More than enough. As we read it and they were high on cocaine or they were coming down, there was lots of arguments and you know fights. They were just shouting. It was noisy. It was continual noise, day and night. They would tell us not to talk, so we had to shut up. So we started reading the Bible out loud quietly. And as we started to read it, whoever was reading it, they would get louder. 
So we like, well, what do we do? We'll read louder. What did we have to lose, really? So we bring the volume up. Their volume would go up. We look in each other. Elana's going, okay. Her volume would go up. And this would go on, and it would be steadily until all that was heard was the word of God being read. Amen. They literally shut up and shut down. And I couldn't tell you, I mean, there's no words that can really describe what we witnessed by the power of the written word of God being spoken out loud and not being allowed to be subjugated by the work of the enemy. And we weren't being aggressive, we were just reading the word of God, but we weren't going to back down. And in some instances, they would actually fall asleep. All our captors would be lying beside us asleep. Their gun by their side. And we looked at each other, but we could take the gun. We could get off here, not that there was anywhere to go. But literally, they were asleep in the middle of the day, and we were looking at each other. Thank you, Lord. Peace. But we, what we saw was that this was a spiritual warfare. But the, the enemy had nothing in his arsenal to compare with the one King James Bible that we had been given. Tiny print, battered, some pages missing. But we saw the power of the living God through his living word. It, it shocked us. We, we all know as Christians his word is powerful. But when we saw the enemy, demonic men backing down, sleeping beside us with their guns unkempt, we knew that there was more in this word than we'd ever, ever seen. In fact, some of the men, one in particular would say, you know when you read that, that, it's an angel passes over. And we said, what do you mean? He said, well, look, everything goes peaceful. And we said, it's not an angel, it's the Holy Spirit of the living God. But demonic men said, an angel is passing over when you read this word. And we were looking at each other thinking, is, it, is this for real? You know, why should we be surprised? But we were. Is this really, you know, real? So all day... Every day we read the Bible and we read it out loud and we prayed, we held hands, we prayed and we prayed for our captors. We prayed for their wives, their children, we prayed for them to find salvation and they could hear us and little by little they moved away and gave us more and more space. We didn't have to say, you know, this is cramped, can you move we just saw a spiritual engagement taking place. And as we honored God and believed his word and walked by faith and not by sight, we saw the power of the living God and demonic men who would have terrified you in the flesh. Some of them would have terrified Some of them were built like tanks. And as David said, they worshipped Egbesu, which is a god of war. They did lots of rituals in the morning. They did rituals around the general. 
they did prayers to him. And as soon as it would happen, this would be before even dawn. As soon as that happened, we would be woken by God if we were asleep. And we would begin to pray and cover ourselves in the blood of Jesus Christ and take authority over the square footage which was our mattress, which was ours. That was what we were on. That was ours. We claimed the protection of God on that police. And we saw God's hand upon our, our, our as David says, the, those men were violent, convicted, in some cases, rapists. The general who had kept us was a violent serial rapist. And the first night after they shot Ian, there was overtures, especially towards Ilana, and we were trying to fight it off in our own strength. And I was reasoning with them, saying she was married, she was this, and I said, you can't. We prayed because it was a terrible situation. Not once after that was there any problem. Further than that, we heard it was the general himself who had said to all of the men, if you touch either of the women, I'll personally kill you. So we thanked God for his intervention. He spoke through the most demonic rapist and told everyone not to touch, particularly Alana, 24-year-old who's not even had a boyfriend. So God's hand of protection was visible. And as we read his word, just reading through it, we, you know, we read how God's way of doing it. As David said, we have to love our enemies. We have to feed your enemy if he's hungry. Give him drink. So we were looking at our small piece of bread we had for the three of us, and we were like, do you think we should try that? Sounds crazy, doesn't it? But is this going to work? We've, and we're reasoning. Well, if you give them that bread, we're not going to have anything. What are we going to eat? You know, and we're like, let's just do it. Let's try. And there's one guy in particular who's the one that's still alive, who's given his life to Christ, that we reached out to with a piece of bread and offered him the bread, and he took it. And there were others of the ones who are now dead that we offered the bread to. And literally, as we offered them the bread, it was like we had a loaded gun because they backed off said no, no, no. So even in the act of offering what little we had, we saw spiritual warfare operating. They backed off and wouldn't come near us and got as far away from that point on as they could from us, instead of being in our face the whole time. So instead of us cowering in a corner, we became who we are in Christ. We became settled that our lives are hidden in God with Christ Jesus. Our lives are not our own. They were bought with a price. How dare we think it, we had any rights over them? He revealed all to us in this small area, sitting on a mattress. And he showed us if we do it his way, no matter how crazy it looks, no matter how stupid you may look, like taking off your shoes, like handing a piece of bread. Mm. Obedience to his word Amen. is powerful. Yes. It had an arsenal greater than the cache of guns and knives we had around us. 
the cashy rapists we had around us. We were unmolested, untouched for that whole 22 days, which was not what was expected when we got out. That's not how they expected to find us. We were well, not one headache, not one vomiting, no diarrhea. We were well. All our captors had malaria. They had dysentery. We were praying for them, laying hands on them. Can we pray for you? Why would you do that? Because Jesus Christ loves you and has told us to do it. And they would let us. They would let us pray for them. And every time we did something exactly as the Bible tells us to do it, we were like, wow. It's not in there for no reason. And when we got out and we were trying to think over things and I'm praying to God, like, what are you trying to tell us, teach us about? You know, we understand your word now is real. Every jot and tittle is real. Anything taken from it or added to it is unwanted. So we learned that his word is real, it's powerful, and it can be relied upon. And we were just looking at any other lessons, and especially as we were, how we were taken, the middle of the night, early hours of the morning, sleeping with no clothes on because it's very hot. And as we heard them breaking into the house, horrific noises, really. They'd cut the generator so you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. We were scrambling around in a pitch black room looking for some clothes. And God clearly spoke to me after we got out that that is a picture of his return. He'll come like a thief in the night. And in Peter it says, and sudden destruction will come upon us. And I thought, God, that's exactly what happened to us. We were sleeping peacefully, thinking everything was fine. But A, we were asleep. B, we weren't dressed. We weren't ready for anyone coming in. And I was thinking about it and thinking about it. Why would it happen like that? And he said, that's my church. My church isn't dressed. She's not awake. She's not ready. She's not ready. She needs to have her clothes on and they need to be the clothes I've given her which are white, without spot, without wrinkle. She needs to be dressed and ready. She needs to be looking for me because I believe he's coming soon. And he's merciful that he tells his church to get ready. In his mercy and his grace that we should be ready. And the other thing he clearly, clearly showed us was don't love this world. Love not the world, nor the things of the world, because they are passing away. And when you're lying on a mattress with no clothes, no belongings, no autonomy, no voice, it's not one thing in this world that means anything. 
The only thing, the only cry in your heart is Jesus Christ. And he revealed, don't love the world. Don't hold on to it. And I thought, well, I don't know if I'm holding on to it. And I thought, what am I holding on to? And he showed me again, his word said, if you love mother or father, daughter or son, more than you love me, you're not worthy to be my disciple. That was tough. Because you think, you know, you love your family. Of course we do. But there's a thin line between loving your family and making an idol from the love you give your family. Who's first in your heart? Is it your husband, your wife? Is it your son, your daughter? Jesus says, if it is, you're not worthy to be called my disciple. So that was a woo. Love not the world means not just don't accrue riches, don't have a big bank account that's not doing anything, but don't put idols where Jesus Christ should be. So he was clear in his, his lessons that he gave us clear that we are soon approaching a time in this country where we will be under hard persecution. We will not always live in peace here. We will not always be safe to walk the streets. We will not always be allowed to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. We think we're safe here. We think we're in a country with freedom, but our freedom is fast going. In many cases, it's gone and we're not aware of it until we step over the line and then you'll be made aware. But the laws are already in place to shut you down, to shut your mouth, to intimidate you away from proclaiming who your faith is in. And actually, after we got back, we've got friends, one, a guy who's Indian, his father's from India. They live in Cambridge, this couple, very middle-class Cambridge couple. He got a phone call just about a few weeks after we were back. His dad had been missing for a few days, or overnight and a day. And they were a bit wondering where he was. Anyway, they found his dad. His dad had been kidnapped in Leicester from his shop. He had a jewelry shop and beaten to death. So we're not talking about Nigeria here. That almost floored me when I heard that from my friend, a good friend. That was his father. I thought, God Almighty, it is. There's a lawlessness coming here too. Because what we saw in Nigeria was in an instant, everything changed. What had been peaceable for 15 years, it was as suddenly as if God's hand had been lifted slightly. Not fully taken. But he just said, okay, because they're returning to their pagan worships. They're turning their back on the Christian message. And he's taking his hand. He's lifting it off areas that it's been protecting and people that have had his protection. What are we doing here in this country? We're throwing them out and welcoming any god and any idol from any country and culture. So his hand is leaving. 
But what you know, he clearly impressed on us was that there will be persecution. What we've seen in Africa, what we've seen with Boko Haram killing the Christians in, in Nigeria and the incursion of Muslims down to that place which was all traditionally been a Christianized area. But there's a lawlessness. There's, men will be lovers of themselves. We've seen it. Men are lovers of themselves. They've got no restraint. They've got no authority over them that they recognize. God has been taken out of our society. And God is warning us, and he's, that's what he's impressed on me. And it's not a comfortable thing to say, but wherever I meet the body of Christ is to be, is to share, get ready, get dressed, don't be sleeping, prepare yourself for troubles, persecutions. As it says in Peter, why are you surprised at this fiery trial that's come upon you? That's what we read on the, on the mattress in the Delta. Why are you surprised at this fiery trial? Because we were surprised and we were outraged. Why should it happen to us? And we thought, yes, why are we surprised? He said we will have trials and persecutions. But we should rejoice in the trials. And by do, so doing and standing on the word of God, we will overcome them. However that may look, Ian overcame. He's not here to witness to it, but we are. Overcoming isn't always what we think it is. And a battle isn't always what we think it is. It isn't always shouting the enemy down and taking loud authority and screeching. The authority is in the word of God. The authority is in who we are in Christ. And in the blood that covers us. It doesn't just wash us, it covers us, protects us, and makes us warriors and fighters in a frontline battle with an enemy who's after your soul and the souls of our children. And he wants to knock every Christian off their stride. His final battle plan is to get you, to get me. He's not interested in the people in the world. He's got them already. He hasn't got you. It's you he's after. And he's going to try every trick and every left hand, right hand way into our lives. And sometimes we can, I know, feel very isolated. We can feel alone in our walk. We can feel God's left us. He's not hearing my prayers. I'm not seeing anything. I don't feel anything. And God's saying to you, I'm here. I've never left you. I'm not angry with you. Some of you believe God's angry with you. Some of you think you've done something and he's not talking to you. He's not like that. He's not a human being. He doesn't go in the huff. He doesn't take against us. He's for us. But the enemy will tell you that God's angry with you, that God's left you, that God doesn't want to use you. You've got nothing he can use. It's all a lie. Let me tell you, it's the biggest lie. And it's his weapon in this time to knock you off your stride. But if you hold fast, read the word, become people of prayer. Speak to Jesus Christ and let him speak to you. And he doesn't speak in a shouting voice all the time. Sometimes it's just, you know, this is the way, walk in it. Just keep walking in that way. 
until he says, okay, let's go this way. It's not rocket science. But we will get knocked off by the enemy because he is out to derail each and every one of his. If we are seeking to please Jesus Christ, then the enemy, you are his number one target. You know, he's number two. It's Christians he's after. It's the remnant church who are standing on the word of God, who haven't sold out, who haven't bowed the knee to contemporary rubbish. So all that God is saying, hold on, hold fast the things that you were given, as we read in Revelation, just hold fast. And and walk by faith, not by sight, not by what you feel. Because we, when we were challenged, that it was us that had to strengthen what was remaining, that there were things in us dying or dead. And yet we thought we were sorted. We thought we were okay. But we were walking by feelings in many cases. We didn't feel God. We didn't feel his power. We didn't feel his... We have to walk by faith in the Son of God who died and gave himself for us. So get dressed, church. Get your good clothes on. Get your face washed. Get the spots and the wrinkles out because we're going home soon. And whatever has got to come before we get home doesn't mean nothing. Once we get home, it will all seem... Eye has not seen, ear has not heard the things that God has in store for those who love him. So keep on, hold on, hold fast. Don't let the enemy knock you. When he's lying to you, tell him, shut up, you're a liar. I belong to Jesus Christ and he loves me. Amen. Amen. get up after that (laughs) dear friends it's it's so important that we just take what the Lord has been saying to us isn't it please hold fast what the Lord has been speaking into your life because what you've heard this morning has come at a great cost. And therefore it's worthy of much meditation. What Shirley was sharing at the end is the similar sort of burden that the Lord's been laying on my heart and which I spoke at a meeting yesterday. It's a very similar thing. It's going to be difficult days ahead. I think we sense in our spirits as well as by what we're seeing that the days are going to be difficult ahead. And the message we've heard this morning much is we need to be made ready and shed ourselves of these things we hold on to that are of this world. May the Lord be everything to us.
wonder if we can bow in prayer and ask the Lord that he would write what is spoken to us upon our hearts. Many thanks to David and Shirley for being willing. I mean, this isn't the first time they've recounted what they've been through and to, to have to recount what you've been through when it's so horrific. I think we can at least appreciate that can't be easy. So we're very grateful to the Lord and for you both in being willing to come this morning and bring these things to us. The burden of my heart is that as a church, God will get the responses after. <clears throat> Let us pray together, shall we? Dear Lord, we want to thank you so much that you've spared David and Shirley, that you gave them grace to love those who hated them. We thank you that these captors had the opportunity of experiencing Christ in David and Shirley. Oh God, we thank you that you was reaching out to people in such darkness and bringing the gospel to them. Lord, we want to pray from our hearts, Lord, that you would write your word upon the hearts of everybody who's heard this message this morning. Lord, deliver us, as we often say, from merely agreeing with sentiment rather than allowing the word to be written on our hearts. Lord, help us to be transformed in our estimation of what is valuable and what isn't in the future. Lord, we want to be those that aren't taken by surprise over things, and we call upon you to awaken us from our slumber in the church in the West. Lord, how long? We have rested upon the sacrifice of our forefathers who gave everything to grant us by your power and your spirit the freedom which we have afforded to this day. But, oh God, we just pray that you'd awaken us. Lord, help us to be ready for the days ahead. Help us to be those that are filled with the Holy Spirit. And, Lord, meditating day and night on the word of God, the word of life. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being able to receive these messages this morning. Lord, it is such a privilege that you've given to us that you would speak into us as a church. And we esteem this great, Lord. We ask, O oh Father, that you would write your word on our hearts and that we will be transformed from this day forward. Lord, begin to awaken your church in this country. Begin to stir those who you can stir. Begin to deliver us for your namesake, Lord, that there might be a remnant that stands in the last days and is willing to go through the tribulation that is affording uh, us in the future. But we call upon you, O oh God, Lord, you've given us testimony Lord, through our brother and sister, we thank you for the power of your grace 
in the midst of such awful circumstances we can't even imagine. But, oh God, they've testified this morning that your grace is sufficient. And we thank you we have first-hand experience in such darkness that your grace is more powerful than our situations. And therefore, Lord, you can enable us, even us, to overcome and prove your authority over our circumstances. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. What a great God you are. And we owe it down to the fact, Lord, your son went through something that none of us will ever experience. Lord, the depths of his suffering, but we thank you that he overcame. And we thank you now that we can overcome by the blood of the Lamb. And we praise you, O God, for the glory of the testimony that you're seeking to work in all our lives. And Lord, it will stand. It will stand. And this will go into eternity to the praise of our God forever and ever and ever. Oh, we bless you, Lord. Be with us, Lord. Be with us after this service. Cause our conversation one to another to be unto edification and the building of each other up in the things of God. And out of hearts of love and desire for the well-being of the other. Lord, we bless you and praise you for meeting with us today. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ our one and only Saviour. Amen. 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 Bless you, everybody. Thank you so much.